Welcome to the Second Breakfast Podcast, where we'll talk about food and fitness technologies and our own experiences eating and cooking and aging and grieving and moving and monitoring our bodies. My first guest today is Margarita Smith, a yoga instructor and baker in Portland, Oregon, and also one of my very best friends. I am thrilled to have Margarita be my first guest on here because she was truly instrumental to my becoming an athlete over the past few years. At the beginning of the COVID lockdown, I started doing yoga with her via Zoom. It was the first time I'd ever done yoga, really ever done any movement or exercise class. And it was just a few weeks before Isaiah died. It was a few months before my health really spiraled downwards. And Margarita was there for me throughout, helping me find some stability, literally and figuratively, and gain confidence and strength before I moved on to weightlifting and running. As a black queer person living in a larger body with a transplanted kidney, Margarita has a very different experience with yoga than, well, (laughs) almost everyone else doing yoga in the Pacific Northwest, for sure. This is a political practice, not just a movement practice for her. And like me, Margarita is a grad school dropout. We didn't fail at academia. Let's be clear, academia failed us. But we'll talk today about how I think this experience of critical thinking, that that training that we had in grad school, and how the progressive politics, maybe, of grad school may or may not transfer to fitness. We'll talk about food and yoga and, of course, technology. Uh, technology and yoga looks a lot different than technology and, say, running. The running community sort of expects now that one will wear a fitness watch and will track a bunch of data. Yoga? I don't know. Not so much. I feel like there's a way that like technology is coming into fitness spaces in a way that's just like, but it's taking you out of the space. Like so many people come into my class with like smartwatches and stuff. And so when they're supposed to be in restorative yoga, they're checking their pulse on their phone. I'm just like, you know what though? If you sit still and let your mind go silent and focus on your breath, you can hear your own heartbeat. (laughs) You don't need an appliance. And it's so frustrating because it's just like, okay, so you're you're not in the moment anymore. And because it's just like this, the whole time, I'm just like, but I'm trying to get you in your body. One of the things that I try, try to write about is that all of this tech promises that it's going to help us understand our body, but it's almost the antithesis, right? We're offloading all of our self-knowledge and I guess self-discovery to a tool that collects a lot of data, but it doesn't mean shit, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I just want everybody to move their body. And I know yoga isn't necessarily for everybody. Um, and I want people to who come to yoga to, to decide if it's for them and not. And I don't think you can do that if you're not paying attention. If you're like always in your watch, you're seeing like, oh, there's a result here, but you're missing this whole moment that could be a very people don't understand how in a room full of people not to continue to compare themselves to other people and to just be on their mat and do what works for them and figure out what works for them. Because that's the hardest part. People don't even know. They're so out of their bodies. Most of us have, were taught when it comes to moving our bodies that you have to listen to the teacher and obey the teacher. (laughs) 
traumatic PE experiences make people sort of conditioned to sort of hand over the decision making. So the hand over the decision making of what to do with their body to coaches, mm -hmm. um, to teachers, we're not really taught how to listen to our body because that is not on the agenda. The agenda is sort of how many times can, you know, how many push-ups can you do? Well, I mean, that's the other problem with PE so much in this country, and especially I think when we were coming up, that it was rarely an individual practice. And so if you weren't an athletic person, you were really humiliated because you were disappointing an entire team. Um, yes. And that's why I hated it, because it's just like, I well into adulthood, just like hated exercise because it had always been humiliating for me. President's physical fitness oh. exam, like no preparation for president's physical fitness exam. And then one day you're like, okay, run a mile. And it's just like, well, I have crappy shoes, flat feet. And I have never, I have not tried to do this since last year when you humiliated me. Um, and also yeah. like pull-ups, what the hell? Um, and, and so there's, and there's always that shaming component because everybody's watching because you have to stand in a line, do your pull-up or not. And then I had the coach that was just like, wouldn't let you be done until you did it. So I'm just like, it's not going to happen. I'm a fat kid. I read like I, I'm my, my, like for recess, I sit under a tree and read. Part of my whole teaching thing is I so often feel like I'm like Cassandra, like, I know what's going to happen. Please let me share my experience with you so that you don't have to go through what I went through. As a child, fitness seemed inaccessible because I wasn't naturally athletic. And then growing up, you just stop playing after a while. And you're encouraged to stop playing because, you know, that's childish. Um, and then I had kids and I had work and I had school and everything about being an American encourages you to push through. And so you just get really good at not listening to your body. Um, you feel a little tired, have some coffee, smoke a cigarette, take a stimulant and keep on moving through your day. Um, and not to like, and God, and who even has the time to like sit and listen to their body and figure out if, if your body is doing okay. God forbid something isn't okay, as you know. Yeah. Right? Like in some ways, you it's just better. It's better to like be in denial, especially when you have the sense that maybe something's wrong, because then you know that you're going to be facing like insurmountable, insurmountable medical bills. Exactly. And, it's just like, yeah, so what if I find that I'm sick? How will I pay for it? Um, who will take yeah. care of my kids? Who will like, you know, pay all the bills that have to be taken care of when I'm not capable of doing it because I need to rest? Um, I don't think that's an accidental thing. I think it's very much by design in a capitalist society that if you don't have time to sit still, you won't get to listen to your body, but you also won't be able to demand the right to the things you're entitled to, like a reasonable work day or, um, you know, a long enough lunch break to actually linger over a meal and digest your food properly um, or paid sick days. And I can't believe after three years of a freaking global pandemic, we still can't just let people not go to work when they're sick. Um, and and now we're actively encouraging like people who have co positive COVID tests to just go to work anyway. And as an immune suppressed person, I just find that like so many feelings. Um, Because I, I, I mean, throughout the course of this whole thing, I felt like really invisible as a person who lives with multiple chronic illnesses and is immune suppressed. But it's as if um, everybody imagines that 
people like me are disposable because they're really old and they're already really decrepit. And it's like, no, you can be seemingly healthy. And that was why I ended up so sick in the first place because I seemed fine. Everybody, including me, especially me, was really shocked when I ended up in critical care with only 6% kidney function. Um, um, because, but there comes a point where you can only push your body so far. Your body's just like, yeah, I'm going to die now. Like literally, <laughs> um, I was 38 years old. I was 38 years old and I felt fine. But that's the thing. Like so many of the things that most often impact Americans are things that are asymptomatic or have very subtle symptoms, kidney disease, diabetes, hypertension. They don't have any symptoms until you're really a mess. Um, and so, you know, I'm feeling like maybe this is just like heat stroke, go to urgent care. You were in grad school. I mean, it actually is sort of like part of the, like part of the regimen of grad school is they just grind you up into little pieces, you yeah, know? Nothing, nothing, and nothing is allowed to come before grad school, even your own wellness. And I definitely believe that the rigors of grad school masked a lot of my symptoms because I remember like laying in a in a hospital bed in East LA, like looking at the symptoms of kidney failure. And I'm like, I thought this was anxiety because like all of the symptoms of kidney failure just look like depression and anxiety. I had nausea. I was tired all the time. I was thirsty all the time, but also I was also drinking so much, so much alcohol to cope with the stress of a really just unkind, I mean, really sadistic um, dissertation chair. Um, and, you know, and plus I had two kids and nobody in grad school gives a fuck about your kids. I'm sorry, can I say fuck? <laughs> um, so um, as if I could like, you know, put them in a box until I finish my dissertation <laughs> um, and not that um, they are a part of the person I am and deserve the same support I, I deserve. And which is, you know, we could go off on a tangent about why the academy remains so homogenous. When you were in grad school, did you do yoga or is yoga something that was tied up with your recovery from the kidney disease? Oh, very much. I mean, I when I was in grad school, like my self-care was not. Um, you know, I um I was either dealing no, was it, with kids, yeah, yeah. I was dealing with kids or I was dealing with school. Um and <laughs> You know, the closest thing I got to anything resembling self-care was putting the kids to bed and walking two blocks to the karaoke bar, which is, I mean, its own kind of release. But I think if I had a yoga practice in grad school, I think that I probably wouldn't be sitting here, you know, six and a half years post-kidney transplant. I mean, maybe I would have. I have a lot of predisposed. I have a lot of pre-existing factors genetically in my family. Hypertension runs in my family. But I really thought I was doing great. I was eating better than the food I was raised on. And I felt like I was at least like more active than um, anybody that I grew up around. But, you know, maybe I'm just like a a perfect storm of bad genetics. Um, but I mean, honestly, I can't think of anything that could have repaired my grad school experience. It was just that was it was an ordeal and not something I would be willing to revisit or wish on anybody. But um, so while I was on dialysis, because I was on dialysis for like four years before I got the transplant was when I started doing meditation. So I didn't have a movement practice and, you know, dialysis is hard. I was just really exhausted most of the time. But um, I think that meditation definitely got me through that period of time because 
it felt so depressing because I had this whole like life scheme that like, okay, so by the time the kids are grown, I'll still be in my early 40s and I could just still have like, you know, a vibrant life. I'll have a degree and, you know, I have, you know, we all have plans and that all that got yanked out from underneath me. And so I had four years. Well, I think probably the first year and a half was just me being an asshole because I was pissed and I was sad and I was grieving like a whole life that I imagined for myself because I got kicked out of grad school and then I almost died. <laughs> so that was a shitty year. <laughs> so, um, you know, I spent a lot of time just being like, you know, a miserable person to be around and reading Rumi, which was really actually quite helpful. Every step of the way with yoga was very much by accident. I started doing meditation because I had a friend who was just always like super chill and she just had this vibe where it's just like, oh, I want some. Like, I was like, how do you get like that? Like, and I started, you know, just weekly meditation and then started doing more meditation on my own. And it did make difficult people more manageable. And I mean, even now I tell people sometimes like, my yoga has saved so many lives and, and kept so many people from having their feelings hurt because I can just like, after several years of practice, I can take a breath and my whole body's just like, okay, we're going to all just unclench now. <laughs> and, you know, that took a lot of practice. And then, so the movement practice came afterwards, after transplant, because they basically send you home with this huge binder of like, you know, how to check your vitals, what you should eat. And then it's like, eat a Mediterranean diet watch your salt and exercise. I'm like, well, but what though? Because <laughs> I never had. And then once I started researching the drugs I was on, so many of them like are bone depleting. It's like, okay, so weight training, definitely. Um, but that just seemed like so sort of onerous because like weights are expensive and having a trainer is expensive. So <laughs> I ended up coming into like the movement aspect of yoga through a Groupon of all things. <laughs> I, found, wow. I found Groupon for a yoga studio near me and um, they had like a, um, it was like $30 for 30 days unlimited. It was like about a mile from my house. And I went and I just started going to classes like all the time and, you know, starting out with like slower practices and gradually working my way up. And then when the Groupon ran out, the studio manager was like, so we need somebody to clean the studio once a week and then you can have all the classes you want. And I was like, yeah, it took like two hours to clean the studio and then I could go to all the classes. But I don't think that they realized how many classes I was going to show up to because at this point I was still recovering. I was only like six or seven months out from transplant. So like still like getting a lot of my core muscles were still healing. Um, and I wasn't very strong coming into it anyway because I had suffered a lot of muscle loss while on dialysis. And so like, I was taking like two, three classes a day some days, but I was definitely there like seven days a week. Um, and I just remember like, almost as soon as I got home from the hospital, and I was only in the hospital for like four days after transplant, people from grad school were emailing me like, so you're gonna apply to go back to school? I was like, no, like God, no. Or sending me like job announcements for things I could do with a master's degree. And I was just like, okay, hey though, pause, cause I still can't lift more than 10 pounds and it still like hurts when I sneeze. So not yet. And then I really started thinking about what my priorities were because for so long, it was always somebody else. Like I had my son when I was 20. Um, and so I spent all those years prioritizing my kids and everything I was doing was about making a future for them. 
Um, and then they were grown and I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. And I just remember talking to somebody, maybe it was you, who um about going back to grad school and sitting some because people were like, but you were so close to being done. But to me, it just felt like I had been drinking from a bottle of poison and maybe I was almost done with it, but like it was just going to make me sick again to like finish it. And so I um I was like, I can't do that. Like, I just really liked doing yoga. I liked the way it made my body feel. And like, finally, I had a way to move my body that didn't make me feel awkward or weird or embarrassed because I could like literally go to the yoga studio and not look at anybody else. And even in a room full of people, just like it was just me and the teacher and I would get like encouraging feedback and I started to feel like so much stronger than I'd ever felt in my life. And um, I think the tipping point for me when I decided to become a teacher, ironically, was the same tipping point when I for why I decided to become a professor. Because when I went to undergrad initially, I was going to go to law school because I had been working with domestic violence survivors. And then I got into undergrad and I had like no black professors. And I was just like, we should get to see ourselves. Like, we should get to see that this is possible. And um, so then I thought, I decided I was going to go to grad school. And it was very similar with yoga, where there had been another shooting of another Black man who was, like, very close in age to my own son. And my first impulse, because it's always my impulse when I feel stressed out, was like, I need to meditate. I need a yoga class. And, um, but then I also felt like I cannot deal with a bunch of white people right now. And I live in Portland, Oregon. So it's like, you can take yoga or you can avoid white people. You cannot have both. <laughs> and so, um, and so I decided, okay, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to go to yoga and I'm just going to like, you know, make a beeline through the lobby, not talk to anybody, get on my mat, do my thing and then make a beeline out. And I did that. But of course, like the whole drive there, there's this tension, like get past the white people <laughs> and, um, I was just thinking, how nice would it be if I could just like go to a class and there were more people who looked like me who were also having this experience of like this day where it's like this shit again? Because um, that's really what I wanted to be in a place of people who wanted to do yoga, but also were like, we are here because, oh, my God, this shit again. Um, and so I thought, well, I guess I have to make that space. And so, you know, I um, started looking for yoga teacher trainings. And found one. I was the only person of color in my yoga teacher training. That was weird. Um, I mean, but I mean, I guess it was weird because like somehow I was under the illusion that somehow white people in yoga could not, you know, be racist and even like subtly racist. Cause I don't think anyone in that room, they would be deeply offended if I referred to anything they did or said as racist. But I think, you know, those sort of microaggressions that just heap on until it's exhausting. I intentionally picked the social justice yoga teacher training and um, it wasn't, it was like, basically the social justice aspect was the leader of the training just doing MLK's greatest hits, but you know, happy MLK, like, <laughs> you know, none of them mark this nonsense. Um, none, of, none of his later works, um, you know, um, no deep cuts. Um, to which I just like, I, I remember very distinctly getting into an argument um, in a yogic way, which is super passive aggressive, um, <laughs> but um, getting into an argument with another person in the training because we were talking about projection and just sort of like 
because you do sometimes have to like help your students manage their feelings in yoga. A lot of times moving your body creates a lot of emotional release. But we're doing the session and she was really like steering into like being empathetic with oppressive people. And when I say like oppressive people, like the examples were like Hitler and Pol Pot. I'm just like, no, no, no. What? Yeah. <laughs> like that, like, so the problem with Hitler and Pol Pot is they were like projecting their own insecurities. And it's like, but they did genocides though. So I think that we can like pull back from like feeling empathy for them because that's insane, literally. Um, and so like, and I was like getting more and more frustrated. And so it's like, no, though, I can't, I, I feel like that's not reasonable. And what I'm more interested in is how do I handle the people who've been subjugated? How do, how do I support them um, in the practice? Um, and I, you know, I mentioned like, how do I support a student who comes into class and got pulled over by cops on the way or is having a bad day like me because another person that looks like them has been the victim of police brutality? That's what I want to know. Like, I, I don't think it's my work to manage the feelings for oppressors. I want to support and empower the subjugated. And so one of the people in our training, her husband is a cop. And um, she's like, well, what if a cop comes into your class? Which is like so outside of the point of what I'm even asking about. And I said, well, first of all, I, I shouldn't know what my students' jobs are. But if a cop comes into my class into my studio with in full uniform, he can't come in anyway because legally he can't leave his stuff. He, what is he gonna like put his taser and his sidearm in a cubby and then take a yoga class? And I don't think that those police trousers like move like that. It's like, it's like that is a red herring. And um, if somebody wants to come to my class, I'm not gonna turn them away. If a cop walks into a studio, yeah, I'm gonna say, none of this is appropriate. A taser, a nightstick, a gun. <laughs> Um, mace, none of that is appropriate in this space. You're going to have to leave and change into something else and put all that crap away. Um, and I was like, and I, I'm glad to say in my four years of teaching yoga, a cop in full uniform has not come into the studio demanding to take a class because that would be insane. Um, and, but, you know, and I just feel like that was a way for a group of white women to not like look at the very different experience that they might have to confront with students of color in their class because I don't think anyone's thinking about that because and I know they're not because even after four years of teaching I still have to explain to people that I work here when I go to the studio um and so you know it's still a space where I don't always feel like people expect me to belong um for a lot of different reasons because of the color of my skin because I'm just like this all the time. Even when I'm teaching yoga, I never like fall into that, um, you know, that yoga cadence that works for some people. I teach yoga for the kids who are like, for the fat kids who tried to get out of gym class, basically, because that was me. <laughs> um, and so sometimes when I'm demonstrating an asana, I'll fall out of it. And I say to my students all the time, like, I can show you this or I can explain it to you. I cannot stand on one foot and talk to you at the same time. <laughs> I still can't do that. Um, and so, and so usually we pause class, I give a demo or more frequently lately, because I'm getting more um, regular students in my um, more active classes, I'll have a student do the pose while I adjust them and talk them and talk the rest of the class through what's going on with the pose, um, which I find is better for me too, just to avoid injury and overworking my body. Um, but yeah, I mean, I talk a lot, I make jokes, 
And I mean, I don't make jokes just because I'm nervous. I mean, I make jokes because when people are laughing, they're more relaxed. And when they're more relaxed, they can really be comfortable in their bodies and they can surprise themselves with what their body can do once they actually just like get over feeling self-conscious or nervous about falling over or being seen. And so my class is always like, be a weirdo, be a little bit awkward. Because even when you fall, your body, your brain is learning how to do it better next time. It's learning first how to fall safely for the next time you do that. Because your nervous system is constantly like just background noise, like trying to figure out like, okay, you're out here doing weird stuff. Why won't you just put both your feet on the floor? Okay, I guess we have to figure out how to keep you up on just one foot because you keep doing that. And you get good at that in the controlled environment of a yoga class so that when you lose your footing out in the world, your nervous system is like, oh, I know this one. <laughs> I got you. This is why you kept doing that weird thing for no reason. Because the, the really deepest parts of your nervous system, they will reward you for exercise, but they don't understand why you do a task without accomplishing something. You know, it's like, it makes sense to your nervous system. Okay, we chop wood, we make a fire. <laughs> you know, we stand over a stove, we have food. But like, you're the most primitive parts of your nervous system are like, so you're just like jumping around. You're not going anywhere. You're just getting your heart rate up. I mean, I'll give you some endorphins, but I'm not really sure what's happening here. Because <laughs> there's an easier way to do this and I feel like you're making it hard for no reason. But that only works if you're really present in your body when you're doing yoga um, and, and if you have a good shavasana, because that's the thing about stillness and your brain continuing to work. When you sit still, your brain starts to process all the stuff you did while you were moving. And I found, too, for my students who are really struggling with poses, even if we take a little bit of shavasana in the middle of class and then try again, even just taking like about a minute or two to be still. And they're not even necessarily thinking about how to work the problem, but their brain is on its own. Their body and brain are like having a conversation. And then inevitably, when we come back into it, they do it better. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, maybe in another life I would have been a neuroscientist, but um, I'm not going back to school <laughs> unless it's a yoga teacher training at this point. Um, I love that. I, Ken and I just finished listening to um, Naomi Klein, the audiobook of Naomi Klein's new book, Doppelganger. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to talk a little bit about sort of, I think, misinformation and yoga, which she kind of gets at with, of course, her doppelganger, um, Naomi Wolf. Um, uh, but one of the things that she talks about in there um, is this idea that she draws from John Berger that to be calm is an act of resistance. And I think that it, you're talking about sort of this physiological, the physiological effects of Shavasana, but I think it's also just that ability to sort of understand and be calm in the face of all of the chaos, both real and I think orchestrated and constructed in our world around us, I think is incredibly important to set aside that time um, and to work on the practice of being calm when everything else has got us all wound up, whether it's, you know, from the from news or cap, you know, like the way in which capitalism makes us agitated. And, and I think, I think that that, that practice of calm is, is, um, is, is crucial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, Trisha Hersey talks about this too. Um, the nap yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I, I do think that it's like such an important thing and, and really, and I mean, and 
it's not even just something neuroscience figured it out too. Like even Einstein talked about like the benefits of letting your mind be idle and how, um, and daydreaming and how, because that is, and I, I think that is why it's so revolutionary because when you can sit calmly in stillness, you can come up with, a, you can imagine a better world. Um, you can imagine so many new possibilities and, um, you know, there's a reason that we discount being idle. Idle mind is the devil's workshop. And it's like, yeah, if you're a capitalist, it definitely is the devil's workshop. <laughs> but, um, and I, I think that that is just really so important because, I mean, definitely a big motivating factor for me as a yoga teacher is to be able to connect with people of color and poor people, people who normally wouldn't be able to access yoga and um, just give them the tools because we can't, change the world if we're exhausted and if we're constantly fixated on how to pay our rent and i want to help people figure out that it's possible to both you know be aware and even be like proactive but also give yourself time to rest because i think so many people and i meet so many people like this and i get the impulse who just don't even know what's going on in the world because it freaks them out it's super depressing it makes them anxious it's like i get it but also not knowing makes me really anxious too <laughs> um but um, so I want to be able to offer people the skills to just go, OK, this is happening and I'm going to do what I can about it now. But also the most important thing I can do is take care of myself and live a life that's sustainable so that I can keep trying to be in this world and make it better. Um, and we know that, um, you know, movement can help us manage our feelings, manage depression, um, which is not to say that you shouldn't seek out mental health care if you need that I have a therapist too um because there's only so much yoga can do um with you know your weird family um but um or you know whatever you've been through whatever trauma you have um but I think that definitely yoga can um or any movement practice that you are really committed to and make a regular habit of and don't make it like weird and competitive but just make it about really empowering your own self your own body um, can just be a really revolutionary act. And because there's a reason that we don't really foreground, you know, we want to, we make people put work before everything else, before self-care, even their own well-being. And I always tell my students at the end of the class, like, congratulate yourself for making this time in a society that's always trying to dra drive you to be outside of yourself and do more and not stop to think about if you're okay at all. Because um, it is a really big deal. There's this whole societal push to just not pay attention to yourself. And it's considered selfish to do so, to prioritize yourself. But, you know, you can't give anybody water if your well is run dry. You have to stop and nourish yourself. And always be productive, highly efficient. And I think that that's why yoga like runs counter to so much of that, even the sort of attempts on people's watches to sort of try to quantify, like it's not quantifiable. Like when I go for a run, I can quantify it in lots of different ways, how fast I ran or, you know, how far I ran, but like it's yoga doesn't quite fit into that same kind of model. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, and I also feel like it just, it asks you to use a, a sort of mental muscle that we've all been made to allow to atrophy which is like actually being aware of what your body is doing. Um, 
And so like, yeah. and that's why people think they need like some sort of external monitor. It ties back to, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning with our experiences, you know, in, early on in elementary school where no one ever said to us, I see you're struggling with X, Y, or Z sport. It was always like, either you can do it or you suck at it. There yep. was no explanation. There was no onboarding people. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, nobody took the time to teach you how to do these things, really. It was either you could, you were sort of naturally gifted at fill in the blank, baseball, basketball, volleyball, the sports you play, or you sucked at it. And I felt like, but there wasn't any kind of idea that if you just worked at it, maybe mm -hmm. you could improve. Yeah. And not only did nobody teach you how to do it, they graded you. Like, what the hell? <laughs> And I think that's a big part of why people are so acculturated to just like keep pushing through in yoga class. I always tell people like, you're not going to fail yoga. Like, it's just yeah. like, there's not going to be a, a midterm. Um, and so just like do what feels good in your body. And if you don't know what feels good in your body, take this opportunity to learn. Um, but, you know, even when I like give people a cue, it's like, okay, so just do whatever feels good in your body. There's like maybe a couple of people, but most people just either do whatever the prescribed movement is or they just like don't do anything because they just have lost the ability to imagine possibilities in their body. So, okay, so we are going to run out of time, but I want but and instead of talking about yoga and misinformation, which would be talking more about white ladies. So we'll we'll talk about that some other time. Well, so there's about a lot. And especially in COVID, <laughs> it's been crazy because I'm still masking and ugh, yeah. the looks. Um, yeah, but we have to talk about food, right? We have to talk about food. And I have to say that, like, um, you and I have known each other for a long time and our, our boys were friends. And Isaiah would always love to spend the night at your house. And he loved hanging out with Diallo, obviously. But, like, the highlight of the time was always what you made for breakfast. <laughs> that when, he, when I picked him up, it was always like some amazing thing that you would come up with for breakfast. And I think you it were probably one of the best cooks in the Breakfast <laughs> is like legit my favorite meal of the day. Um, I have dialed back my breakfasts because like when, when Isaiah was little, it was like always biscuits and gravy or something like that. Something that it could was, like really yeah. stick to the kids ribs and was cheap. Um, but um, lately, for many reasons, because of hypertension, because I can't nap all day. <laughs> um, but actually, lately, I've been really into um, crispy rice bowls. Um, so just like whatever leftover protein from dinner the night before and some sauteed veg and um, just make like and leftover rice, which is weird because like rice to me is like the hardest thing to cook. I do not know why. Um, but crispy rice bowls is like perfect because even if I overcook the rice, I can just make it sticky on the bottom and, you know, just throw in some, you know, whatever is on hand and then put some sriracha mayo on top of it. And it's just like awesome. And it's, you know, really filling and satisfying, but I can go on and like have my active day. And because I'm just like throwing a bunch of leftovers together and dumping in some, a little bit of soy, a little bit of soy sauce, cause watch your sodium. Um, I didn't mean to, I don't, that, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, you should definitely watch the sodium. Um, but um, no. Um, so yeah, um, just more fresh veggies. Um, yesterday was I was it was a really really good one. I had like some leftover pork 
and some zucchini that I had roasted the night before and some avocado and some pickled onions and then um you know just the crispy rice and it was and then I put a fried egg on top of it all and it was just like the most pleasant and quick breakfast I could like have everything done in like less than 20 minutes and just like super satisfying um I still like my you know carb heavy breakfast but only if I don't have anything else going on today uh, that day are you baking at all are you are you baking bagels I have not baked bagels in a while I need to bake some bagels um I didn't I made some English muffins yesterday because there are some days where I just like need to have a quick on-the-go breakfast sandwich um and bagels are like yes. a three-day process um but yeah bagel sandwiches are still my jam and if it's a bagel sandwich day it's gonna have to be um kimchi spam and eggs on a bagel Ooh. yeah Damn, that sounds good yeah just like cook the spam until it's like really crispy on the outside um because it renders fat so beautifully too and um it just sort of caramelizes and then just before you take the spam out throw the kimchi in the fat <laughs> um Oh, it's just really, really nice. And it caramelizes a little bit too. And I've been making these um gochujang and roasted garlic bagels. Oh, I wish you could have one. They're so good. Um oh, yeah. Yeah, super yummy. And they're beautiful because um the gochujang is so oily, it doesn't fully incorporate. So when you cut it, the crumb is all kind of swirly um with red and white. Um so but yeah, super tasty. So that is my fav favorite bagel sandwich for sure. I made, I mixed gochujang with um, brown sugar and made scones with it, had the gochujang swirl in it too, just like a regular cream scone, but with gochujang in it. I've learned that about myself. I have to have like big calories ready for me because if I have to choose between like sleep and eating, I'll sleep and then just like wake up in the middle of the night, just my stomach's just like, okay, we're, we got to punish you for this. Like that doesn't work for us. Um, and so really just having food I can grab that has like a good amount of calories is really key for me. Yeah. Same. Awesome. Yay. Thank you. This has been perfect. This has been so great. I am so pleased to have kicked off this podcast with you. And I do want readers to know that they can find you on Instagram at M underscore permanent one and they can contact you there, or they can email me for more information about your private classes, for more information about where and when you teach yoga in Portland. So thank you, Margarita.